Good morning, friends, and happy Mother's Day, moms. My favorite Mother's Day quote comes from the book Shadow of the Almighty, the life and testament of missionary martyr Jim Elliott. That his wife uh, and widow Elizabeth Elliott wrote in 1958, a couple years after he and three other missionaries were killed by the Aka Indians in Ecuador. And next to the Bible, this was probably the most influential book for me as a brand new believer. One of the fruits of Jim's first year in college was a new appreciation of his home and his parents. And in his journal, he wrote the following words. This is the spring of my 19th year. Slowly, I've come to realize that my arrival at this point is not of my own efforts, nor merely by the sure ticking of this winged racer called time but by the quiet, unfelt guidance of a faithful mother and a father preacher who has not spent so much time rearing other people's children that he hasn't had time for his own. And then he says, he writes to his mom, my calendar says Mother's Day with fathers not far off. So the people will pause for a few hours to honor those for whom Children's Day comes 365 days a year. Those who dare not interrupt their labor of love to seek that honor. The florist shops will bustle. There will be a flurry of carnations. The following Thursday, it will all be forgotten until another May rolls around. I, too, pause, but not with flowers, he said. For such are fast-fading sentiments for the immutable devotion of true parental care. I am grateful to you and to our mutual Father who has loved us all with a love unknowable. It is precisely that love that we are going to focus on today. The faithful love of God in Christ that inspires and enables our own. We love because He first loved us. Now today is also a special day because we're about to land the first Peter Living Hope plane. Coming in for a landing after 35 sermons with 1 Peter 5 verses 12 through 14. Standing firm in Christ part 4. So please open your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter 5 and stand with me for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading 1 Peter 5 verses 12 through 14. This is the word of God. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son, Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Lord God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory in Christ. That we would live surrendered lives of faithful love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Peter has been describing the Christian life. Like an experienced older brother who has made his share of mistakes and pours out his heart to instruct his younger siblings and hopefully save them some grief. He's been doing this the whole letter. And now he is summarizing the final words of 1 Peter 5, really verses 5 through 14, have been focused on encouraging believers to stand firm in Christ. Peter reminds us of foundational truths, basic truths that must invade our attitudes. We have seen seven signs of standing firm in Christ, essential attitudes, fundamentals, basics. Today, number eight of eight. A little bit of review. First, we saw that submission to God and others is necessary. Verse five, we acknowledge God's authority, which counteracts an independent spirit. Second, we saw that humiliation before God and others, humility is necessary. Acknowledging God's greatness, that defeats selfish pride. Third, verse 7, active trust in God. Because all of our sin was cast on Christ, we can cast all of our sin on Him. So that counteracts doubt and self-sufficiency. The fourth thing we saw in verse 8 was watchful care. The idea is a disciplined thought life and balanced priorities which counteracts the deeds of the flesh. Fifth, we saw firm resistance of our adversary, the devil, which takes an inward mindset and outward actions. The idea of renewing the mind through the word of God in prayer, relating to others in accountable relationships, recalling truth, reminding yourself of truth, running when necessary. Six, we saw solidarity in suffering, knowing that suffering is a part of the Christian life and your brothers and sisters through the ages and throughout the world are going through the same kind of sufferings. And seventh, we saw hope-filled worship of God, verses 10 and 11, because of what he has promised to do in glorifying us, bringing so great a salvation to its conclusion, to its destination and goal. We know he has justified us, he is sanctifying us, he will glorify us. So we ought to respond in hope-filled worship of God. Now Peter is finishing the letter. He takes the pen and gives the final greeting. He's bringing the landing gear down, and as he does so, he does so in common fashion of his time. He literally takes the stylus in his own hand, writes some closing words, a final greeting, a salutation, this is not just filler. The, he goes big. He name-checks Silvanus, his faithful friend, the scribe and bearer of the letter. He recounts his purpose in writing. He tells them, I've done this to exhort you. Those who have been born again to a living hope, you're to stand firm in the true grace of God. He gives them greetings from some loved ones. He tells them to express their love for one another. And he assures them of their peace with God through Christ. And what Peter is doing here is he is emphasizing faithful love, God's faithful love, and he is calling for ours. Possibly, precisely, because Christ was perfectly faithful to his calling. Because of the cross, because of his strength, we can be faithful to our calling. That's the only reason. Now, by the way, his final instruction, greet one another with a kiss of love, I realize might make some of you uncomfortable today. 
You might be wondering, am I going to try to get everyone smooching today? I looked up the word. It's from the Greek. No, it's actually from the German, smooch. I'm serious. It really is. It really is. We'll just have to see, I guess. Actually, I've been really looking forward to preaching this verse because I do want to get everybody smooching. It's one of my goals today. Now, I realize some of you probably brushed and flossed and used mouthwash because you knew I was going to do this. Did you, John Bishop, did you just pop a breath mint in your mouth? You might want to pass these around. Here's what we're going to do. If your spouse is here, I want you to plant a big one on them. My spouse is in third hour. You need to part the, uh, you need to part the, um, we, well, you know what? This will be the first time we've kissed in church since our wedding on June 1st. Oh yeah, baby. I want you to do the same if you're married and your spouse is here. Give them a big kiss right now. Kiss in church. You can go home and tell all your friends, Pastor had us kiss in church. Oh no. It's good for you. It is good for you. You keep doing that if you're married to that person. <laughs> no, yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, on an ongoing basis... They were asking, like, should we keep kissing now? <laughs> Why don't we listen to the sermon? Let's do that. Now, if you're single and you want to be married to the person next to you, control yourself. Listen to the sermon. But kiss your mom, kiss your dad, kiss your brother, kiss your sister, kiss your aunt, your uncle, your grandma, kiss your spouse. All right. We all good? Are we good? All right. By the way, this is a very personal ending to this letter. Very, Angela is not going to let me live this down, by the way. <laughs> Public display of affection. She would rather have private display of affection. I'll kiss you later. All right. Um, first hour, by the way, there were some people who refused to kiss their spouse. I'm counseling them this week. Got a couple appointments already. No, seriously, a very personal ending to the letter. Peter is pointing out one group of people, big group. He is also pointing out two individuals and three big ideas relating to faithful love. It's what we're going to look at today. Let's look at verse 12. It's the first person he acknowledges is a good friend. Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, he says. Silvanus is Silas. You might know that name, Silas. Silas, who was Paul's traveling companion on his second missionary journey. The Silas who first and second Thessalonians at the beginning says Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church. Same Silas. Why does he have two names? Silas is the Greek form of the Aramaic name for Saul. It's a Jewish name. Silvanus is a Latin name. And his double name is in harmony with him being a Roman citizen. As Acts 16.37 tells us. So he says by Silvanus or with the help of Silas, who is the bearer of the letter... And the scribe, as Peter dictated, Silas wrote it down. Now Peter is commending Silas to the churches. He is assuring them, he's assuring the recipients of the importance and trustworthiness of the one delivering the message. He didn't change anything on the way. When you were delivering a letter in those days, you would give a verbal review first. A verbal introduction. What he's saying to the churches is, this man who's bearing this letter, he's trustworthy. He's faithful. 
You can trust what he has to say. You can even trust his verbal intro. Peter calls Silvanus a faithful brother. Wouldn't we all love to be called faithful? To be called by our peers someone who was trustworthy, someone who could be counted on, someone who was strong. I think it's important to take notice of those who serve among us and appreciate them and commend them. I think it's often neglected. And there is the other side of the coin that is far too often used, overused. People pointing out in public the errors of those whose actions have been detrimental and damaged Christian fellowship. I will uphold, withhold the names of those who have chosen courses of action that break down Christian fellowship today. Wouldn't be appropriate. But I will pick on a couple people worthy of commendation. But no one present today because there are too many. I'm serious. I've been blessed with a very faithful brothers and sisters in my life, my wife, Angela, my parents, Jim and Barbara Shera, my kids, Alexandra and Michael and Ariana and Savannah and Sophia, my brother-in-law, Michael, and others, Steve Skelly, Rod Appleton, Gary Rutherford, Tom Munson, Curtis Myers, Bill Larimore, Gus Hermes, Vince Zemus, Jim Cook, Gary Stubblefield, Rich Cradle, Mark Van Landingham, and seriously, a whole slew of people at this church, and you know who you are. I can't name all the names because I will miss somebody, and I don't want anybody mad on Mother's Day. I want you smooching. Okay. You know who you are. Can't even look some of you in the eye because I'll I'll begin to cry. Because you're faithful. How can we be called faithful the same way Silas was? Only through a work of God's grace in our hearts. Only through a work of God's grace in our hearts. Peter next in verse 13 gives a rather cryptic greeting he says she who is in babylon who is also elect with you who's likewise chosen sends you greetings who's he referring to some people think it was his wife he was married but she who is in babylon that cryptic greeting refers to a church the church in rome it was code word for Rome, Babylon. It matches up with 2 John 1 of a church being called a lady, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but all who know the truth. And verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. Greetings from a church. She who is in Babylon is the church in Rome, code word for Rome. And isn't it awesome to hear a great greeting from a group of people you know and love? I'm talking to a friend far away, and he says, by the way, my church greets you because I know people in that church. That's, that's, that's touching. It's a refreshing thing to your heart. This would have been a refreshment to these suffering Christians. The whole church says hello. The whole church loves you. That's comfort. That's encouragement. Now he also gets very specific as well about one person. He sends a greeting from Mark whom he calls my son. Not his real son, but his spiritual son, Mark, also known as John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Tradition has it that Peter actually helped him write the Gospel of Mark, that he would have been there by his side, even looking over his shoulder as he wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I think it's significant that Peter here name-checks Mark. 
There's two failed men linked together. They've been restored by the grace of God, this true grace of God that Peter says, you stand firm in. But Mark was the one who was sent home on a missions trip, actually deserted a missions trip. You don't do that. He didn't cut it, couldn't handle it, deserted them. This is the same Mark who once failed Paul. Acts 13, 13 says, Paul and his companions set sail for Pathos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Took off. Deserted. Acts 15, move up to there in verse 38. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and let's see how they're doing. Great idea. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. There arose such a sharp disagreement. See, Paul says, we're not taking Mark. He messed us up once. He's not going to do it again. You know, fool me once. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other and Barnabas took Mark with him. You're going to find out in just a moment maybe why. But he sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas, the same Silas here, and departed. Later, Mark became useful again for ministry. Colossians 4.10 says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Hmm. Concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Don't correct him. Welcome him. Things have been settled, it seems like. 2 Corinthians 4.11, Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Maybe you want to give him a hug. Maybe you want to reassure him of his love. He says he is very useful to me for ministry. But I think it's very significant. That here's Peter, who thought he was done. And then here's Mark, who probably thought the same thing about himself. Both had been restored by the grace of God. So Peter points out one church, two people, and then makes three big statements. First, he says, stand firm in the true grace of God. Second, he says, greet one another with the kiss of love. And third, peace be to all who are in Christ. That's not just filler at the end of a letter. How often do you think about what you put before the comma before you write your name or type your name? Sometimes we do it without thinking. In Christ or for Jesus in the gospel or in his grip or whatever you like to put. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thought this through he is he is summarizing some big big ideas so back to verse 12 he says i have written briefly to you it is a relatively short letter letters in those days were supposed to be brief hebrews even calls itself a short letter haha right i've written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of god Stand firm in it. He's exhorting them. It's a strong reminder of truth. It's imperatives built on indicatives. God's action inspiring our reaction. He says, I'm declaring to you, I have been declaring to you that this is the true grace of God. What is this? It's not the letter itself. It's the gospel message that the letter clearly refers to and expresses. 
Peter says, I've been telling you about the grace of God. I've been telling you about the gospel, that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He says, I've been pouring this out to you, and you need to stand firm in it. The true grace of God. Romans 5.2 says, through him also, through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Standing firm in Christ is something every believer should want to do. What every believer should trust God for in their life. What every believer should eagerly and actively pursue and aspire to. What he has done in Christ in saving us. And in process sanctifying us. We are told imperatively to act upon the indicative truth. So that we stand firm in the true grace of God. What does it mean to stand firm? We've, we've seen now eight eight signs of standing firm in Christ, but what does it mean to actually stand firm? If you're standing firm in something, it means you're holding it, it's holding you up. You're not holding it up. If you're standing firm in something, it means that the something is the thing that you are trusting in. And what Peter is saying is, don't, don't trust in your own efforts and your own willpower and your own understanding. You trust in the gospel truth that is holding you up. We need to grasp this. This is crucial to our growth in Christ. If, if somehow we think that God saves us and then leaves us on our own to meet him in heaven, and that somehow by our sheer willpower and determination we are to live the Christian life, we are sorely mistaken, and it will lead us to, to wrong things, either to unbounded legalism that's just suffocating or unwatched licentiousness just I'll do whatever I want it starts in your mind it starts as an attitude of your heart when he says stand firm in the grace of God he tells us all these other things about standing firm He's not saying it's all your work. He's saying basically trust the sovereign power of God and make really wise decisions. We live in a time when the lines between reality and fantasy have been blurred to the point of oblivion. People are walking around in a fantasy world. They are clinging to subjective feelings rather than objective truth. Atheism is on the rise. Persecution of Christians is increasing. And mindless living multiplies. And there is mindless Christianity going on, if you can even call it Christianity. Psalm 32, 8, God says, I will teach you and counsel you in the way that you should go. And then he says, don't be like the horse or the mule who have no understanding. Not knowing is not an option for you and me. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come, let us reason together. Jeremiah 4.22 says, There's foolish people that know me not. They have no understanding. Hosea 4 says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Philippians 1.9 says, Paul says, I pray that your love may abound 
in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. You can't approve what is excellent unless you have real knowledge that comes from the objective word of God. 2 Peter 1.5 says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. God wants you to know and understand the objective word that he has given. Not driven by your subjective feelings, impressions, and the like. He wants you to think. Anyone ever say that to you? You got a brain? Use it. God's like, you got a mind, and it matters. There's a battle going on for your mind. Let me remind you of how the Bible describes the minds of unbelievers. Senselessness and ignorance characterizes the unregenerate mind. Romans 1.28 says they've got a depraved mind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says they've got a blinded mind, that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They cannot see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Christ. They can't see the gospel. They can't grasp it. Ephesians 4.17 says they've got a futile mind, an empty mind. Colossians 1.21 says their minds are alienated from God. Romans 8.5 and following says they've got a mind set on the flesh and it's death. It's a warped mind. Let me remind you of the mind of believers and what the Bible says about that. 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. A Christ-like mind. Romans 12, 1 and 2, we're to have a renewed mind. 2 Timothy 1.7, we're to have a sound mind, a solid mind, a, a mind that is firm on the word of God so that you can do what Philippians 4, 6 and following says, that you put your mind on what is praiseworthy, excellent, right, true, pure, lovely, admirable, noble. That spells pert plan, by the way. I just washed my hair with pert this morning. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 5 and following, says we are casting down imaginations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are ready to take, to take action, basically. Why? Because we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Best recent advice I've been given recently about what to do when you're tempted to sin. The other two hours, I couldn't remember who said it. Someone came up and reminded me, because it was from our home group. Shane McFarland said this in our home group last Sunday night. What grade is Shane in? Sixth grade? Someone put him into the seventh grade already. Awesome, he's smart. He is smart. Look what he told us. See what he told me? Do something else. When you are... Did I just hear duh? That's what I was thinking. You're like, hello. So when you're tempted to sin, think about something else. Do something else. It's been very helpful, by the way. And I said, it's the idea of the month, and there's an award that will go to whoever told me that. And now that someone helped me remember, Shane's getting an award. A cookie or something, I'm not sure. We'll see what, we, we'll see what he gets. Um, you want to alter your life, alter your mind. Satan knows that. His demons know that. What does the Bible tell us? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Jim Elliott said, A man's thoughts die his soul. You constantly dwell on the word of God, it's going to color 
your soul. You constantly dwell on, you know what? It's going to mess up your soul. It's going to color your soul. You fill your mind with the word of God. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, Long with the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation. It's like the word of God comes into your heart and mind and gets congealed with your thoughts in only a way that God can bring about and it drives your behavior. You choose based on what you know. But unbelievers' minds are depraved, useless, rejected, darkened, Without the word of God, you have no clear mind, no transformed life. As Nancy Piercy put it, there's no room for truth. You can't afford to not fill your heart and your mind with the objective truth of the word of God. You will either be continually exposed to truth or continually exposed to error. And you've got to choose which one you're going to have. Believers' minds are to be renewed, transformed, thoughts captive. So when Peter says, stand firm in the grace of God, the true grace of God, amid many counterfeits, false gospels, Ian Murray recounts how Jonathan Edwards argued that the devil does not trouble himself to counterfeit valueless things. Like the devil's not going to go around and just counterfeit trash and make you think, ooh, that's cool trash. And you figure, you see, you find out it's fake. Now here's what Jonathan Edwards said. There are many false diamonds and rubies. But who goes about to counterfeit common stones? You see, your adversary employs very subtle deceptions in making imitations of the most excellent things. You've got to be on your guard. Why does Peter say, gird up the loins of your mind? Gather them together. Because our advocate is a purveyor of truth. Our adversary lies. You stand firm in the true grace of God. Anybody can fall to temptation. Peter did. Here's an apostle who witnessed the teachings of Christ and the the miracles of Christ. He said he'd never forsake Christ. Here's what 1 Corinthians 10, 12 tells us. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. Far from being perfect, Peter was a human with limitations and temptations and sins just like the rest of us. But interestingly, in spite of all that, God considered him worthy to be an apostle, give him the keys of the kingdom. Why? Something special about Peter? No. No. He was chosen by grace, not works, just like you and I. Chosen by grace, not works. Please say that with me. Chosen by grace, not works. Here's these elect exiles that are being considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. And by the way, their problem is not what our problem is. Their problem wasn't that they were too busy with life and going too fast in life to notice Jesus. That's our problem. Their problem was they were slowed down to almost a grinding halt due to suffering, suffocating suffering. Our problem is just the opposite. 
amid a relatively unpersecuted life, we are entangled in all sorts of things that cause us to take our focus off of Christ. Their issue was they needed to get their focus on Jesus because they were losing heart. We need to get our focus upon Jesus because we have unfaithful hearts. What Peter's describing here is not just survival skills for earthly living. What he is giving us is how to thrive in Christ with a heavenly perspective. Enjoying a vibrant, growing, balanced, fruitful life in Christ. That's what God wants for you. In the midst of painful suffering. Peter isn't giving you the Swiss army knife of Christian living that if you could just apply these by sheer willpower, everything would be okay. He is giving you the answer in the person of Jesus Christ and he has been so fixated on Jesus and he keeps doing it over and over and over again. So when he says something like stand firm in the true grace of God and he says something like peace to all of you who are in Christ, very significant very weighty very significant Christ is faithful everything will be alright in Christ and then drop down to verse 14 Peter says greet one another with the kiss of love anybody want to kiss their spouse again go for it you got permission to kiss your spouse Come on, do it. It's good. It's good for you. All right. Anybody want to kiss the person they want to marry that they're not married to? And, and no, you're not going to do that. Okay. All right. Let's actually seriously, though, look at what this means, okay? What does it mean? Greet one another with the kiss of love. It's kind of common in the New Testament. They're always trying to get people kissing, I guess. Greet one another with a holy kiss, Romans 16, 16. All the churches are greet you. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26. Please say it with me. Greet one another with a? And so Peter has to be different. And he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. The Holy Spirit has him write down, kiss of love. Now, the standard Greco-Roman greeting in a family was a kiss. I'm Italian, so some people like to kiss on both cheeks, right? So you've got this going on. It was sometimes exchanged between rulers and, and clients, but normally in the family. So you've got the family of God. And I guess we should all be kissing every time we get together. You don't believe me. I don't believe me either. Because it goes so far deeper than that. Here's what Peter's getting at. It's not about the act of kissing. If you want to do that culturally and it works and you don't kiss the wrong person and you're appropriate about it, great. It goes so much deeper than the act. It is to be a lifestyle of faithful love. It is to reflect wholesome love. It is to reflect unity. The idea is brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. The idea is 
spiritual oneness in Christ. Literally, this means the kiss that is love. The kiss that is love. Let's break down those words. The kiss. It's awesome where it comes from. The Greek word is philema. comes from phileo, love, friendship, love. So literally, the phileo of love, agape, the phileo of agape, the love of love, the kiss of love. What's he getting at? He's literally saying the kiss that is love. You, you perver- almost proverbially kiss them with love. You demonstratively show love to your brothers and sisters in Christ. So sorry for all of you smoochers out there that think it's about going and kissing somebody. You can if you want, if it's appropriate, but it's about a demonstrative display of love. Do you see what I'm saying? You see what Peter's getting at? And this will not be easy. You're going to have to say no to yourself often because just remember, God's concerned with how compassionate you are towards your brothers and sisters, not how comfortable you are. Your humility, not your head knowledge, is what God's concerned about. Your love, not your liberty. Think about it. There will be people in the church that you have trouble loving. The Sheriff family is pretty awesome. But sometimes we take the low road. You know, in private, just the seven of us. I I don't know if this ever happens in your family, but in my family, there is every once in a while, and I have the culprit, or others are are the culprit, where, I don't know, we're around the dinner table, and we start talking about someone. And we make a comment. Someone makes a comment. It's not stellar. We kind of take the low road and talk behind someone's back. So we came up with a, a thing. I don't know how it started, but we said, well, you got to go write them a letter and apologize. You get any letters from my kids recently? No. Um, no, seriously. We're like, you got to write them a letter. So if you ever hear my kids tell me, Dad, you need to write them a letter, it's because I talk behind their back. I hope they don't throw me under the bus. <laughs> but the idea is you shouldn't, you shouldn't be unloving to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Peter says, kiss them with love. So far beyond the act the expression of the agape and phileo love of God. Last verse. Second half of verse 14. Now he says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Man, don't we need peace? The human race is in desperate need of true love and true peace. Hearts need peace. Relationships need peace. Nations need peace. Families need peace. I think mothers are the best example of love and peace. Washington Irving said, A mother is the truest friend we have. When trials heavy and sudden fall upon us, when adversity takes the place of prosperity, when friends desert us, when trouble thickens around us, still will she cling to us. And endeavor by her kind precepts and counsels to dissipate the clouds of darkness and cause peace to return to our hearts. A mother is a solace for her children. Humanly speaking, mom's at the top. But Peter is talking about more than moms. He's he's taking us to the Lord Jesus Christ and he's saying, He is your peace. You have peace with him. 
You, the enmity has been removed, believers. Friendship has been enabled, believers. Unbelievers, you don't have that. But if you are in Christ, if you're the elect, then you have peace in Christ. Peace. Greek word is erene. It it, it matches up to the Hebrew shalom. It means a deep, overwhelming, abiding sense of well-being because God is in control. So you can have that peace in the midst of the storm. True peace to all of you who are truly in Christ, Peter says. So he's talking about faithful love. He says, here's, here's what you need to do. Stand firm in the grace of God, the gospel truth. Depend on Jesus for everything. Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Demonstrate love and dwell in God's peace. Now, I think we should be very concerned at this point. All of us should be alarmed because we don't always display this kind of faithful love. I think it would be fair for us to all cry out, we're unable to do this, we're unworthy, and we are unfaithful. Don't you ever feel like you're just hanging on for dear life in life? Just trying to survive? I need an answer. I need a solution. I need God to meet my need. And sometimes things just fall in place, but often you got broken pieces and missing parts, a whole slew of challenges mixed into the stew. Welcome to life on earth. Welcome to life on earth. We need Jesus. I don't know how many times I've told my kids, yeah, I know I sinned. I need Jesus. I shouldn't excuse that. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. That's what Peter is like billboarding it for us. You need Jesus. You take a quick check under the hood of the average believer or briefly review the prayer request at your average small group and you know that we are not all mounting up with wings like eagles and running and not going weary and walking and not fainting. No, we're slugging it out on earth in the midst of relational, economical, (laughs) spiritual, cosmic forces, both good and evil. It doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out that we're in a battle of cosmic proportions. Barely hanging on by a thread, out of gas, no resources. Maybe you feel like you have spiritual dehydration. Oh, and then you say, well, you just told me I'm supposed to submit to God and be humble and trust God and watchfully care and resist the devil and be solidarity with my fellow believers and express hope-filled worship and on top of all that you stack on faithful love we can't do this we're unable we're unworthy we're unfaithful but i think that's just what peter's getting at i think that's just what he's getting at he says you stand firm in the grace of god not your own understanding not your own efforts not your own abilities it's because of his grace you're not the source You're not the Savior. You don't sustain yourself. The Lord Jesus is the source and sustainer and Savior. And Peter, the failed one, has been pointing us to the one who never fails. Praise God. Praise God for that. Man, we we often fail miserably. We fail to submit. We fail to be humble. We fail to trust. We fail to engage in watchful care. We fail to resist the devil. We fail to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters. And we fail to worship God probably most grievous to the heart of God we fail to faithfully love you don't know what's next I don't know what's next we're in the same boat only God knows OGK 
He knows who you'll marry or not. He knows if you'll have kids or not. He'll know what job you'll have or not. He'll know who, who your kids will marry and what they'll do in life. And every unknown detail that we have no idea about, he knows. We got yesterday and today. Tomorrow is his. Tomorrow is his. I'm going to give you some good news. It's my duty to give you good news. God has provided the resources you need to thrive in Christ because his riches in Christ are unfathomable. Deeper than the deepest ocean. His faithful love holds you up. So you've been unfaithful. Just confess it to God. Confess your sins. Thank him for the shed blood of Christ that cleanses you from all sin. Walk in victory. Live in his strength one step at a time. He holds you firm in grace. Grace. It is precisely because God never fails that we are ultimately not failures. We're more than conquerors, Romans 8 tells us. And his love never fails because it's rooted in his character. He's beautiful, pure and holy and righteous and perfect and gracious and kind and merciful character. Our best love is merely a reflection of his. What has Peter been getting at? We bring this to a close what he's been getting at is that standing firm in Christ is really the nature of, and another way of saying, sanctification. It's often misunderstood. We, we love to talk about salvation, justification, and how God, the monergistic, God-centered, sovereign acts of God brought us to himself. But when we talk about sanctification, our eyes gloss over sometimes because we got different ideas and... Sanctification is a lifelong work of God and man by which God frees you from sin and increasingly makes you more like Christ. So standing firm in Christ equals sanctification. You can't afford to not understand sanctification. In fact, we're, we're finishing 1 Peter today, but we're not starting the book of Acts till June 14th because for several weeks, I want to go back into 1 Peter and pick out the big ideas. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare. We're going to talk about sanctification and the nature of God's revelation to us. Those three things. Sanctification is the internal, supernatural, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit where God wants you to behold His glory in Christ and put forth all the effort He gives you to enjoy and engage in the Word of God and prayer and obedience and fellowship and trusting His sovereign working. Trusting His providence it's philippians 2 work out your salvation with fear and trembling because god is at work in you both to will and do his good pleasure and he is at work in you he is performing his work of sanctification in believers in and through you not in spite of you you got to get that straight your responsibility is to pursue god-given holiness you get sanctification wrong and it can lead to unrestrained worldliness or suffocating legalism. You get it right, and it looks just like what Peter is describing here. John Owen said it beautifully. Let us live in the constant contemplation of the glory of Christ, and virtue will proceed from him to repair all of our decays, to renew a right spirit within us, to cause us to abound in all duties of obedience. See, Peter has been describing life lived on another plane. 
That's what he's been giving us. Not just under the sun, but seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. In spite of your condition, you can rejoice. Your position in Christ transforms your condition in life. And it's all by grace and by his love and through his peace. The same grace, love, and peace that inspired the faithful love in God's chosen ones throughout the ages. I think of Joseph, multicolored tunic master, dream guy Joseph who put everything on the line and stayed faithful to God in the midst of persecution and temptation in Potiphar's household. I think of the excruciatingly painful Job who did not give up his integrity even though his wife even told him, curse God and die. And he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think of stoned to death Stephen who laid down his life for the sake of Jesus and the gospel saying, Lord, don't count this sin against them. I think of multitudes of Christians around the world today being persecuted, even killed for their faith. They're considered worthy to be suffering for the name of Christ. Closer to home, God is doing mighty deeds in and through loved ones. Really quickly, three notable stories I heard just this week of people faithfully loving Jesus and others as he gives them strength. Our own David Byers in Germany, one of our missionaries, he was mocked and spit upon as obscenities were being shouted at Jesus, all because of his alignment with Christ. And he did not retaliate, but did, as his T-shirt said, walked in love. Our own Elizabeth Nichols was harassed and mocked in her college classroom by her professor, and she, stand, she stood boldly before her professor and her fellow students, her peers, and humbly preached Jesus. And our own Jim Songer, he prayed to be salt and light. He told me the other day, because I've been praying to be salt and light. So he has a heart attack a week ago. Goes to the hospital and leads two people so far to Christ. He says, I, I can't explain it. I'm on a mission for God. There's a lot more stories where these come from. Three cheers for the faithful love of God in Christ. Three cheers for the faithful love of God in Christ. Lord God, thank you that while we are sometimes ravaged by life here on earth, the capstone to a life of standing firm in Christ is how you call for and enable faithful love amongst your church. All those born again to a living hope. Lord God, I, may, may your people be encouraged today that though our sins caused an humanly impenetrable barrier between us and you, you smashed through that barrier with furiously beautiful love. And it's evidenced by Christ's shed blood and salvation secured. Thank you, Lord, that a believer can say, I was chosen before the world began. And you drew me to yourself in this, your perfect time. And we are yours. And you're guiding us. And because you never fail, we are not failures. We are more than conquerors through him, through you who loved us.